The book of Hebrews is unlike any other book of the Bible, I feel like, and I'm loving it. I'm loving and I'm enjoying going through the book of Hebrews. I hope you are too. I hope if you miss on a Sunday, you're able to catch up on YouTube or on the podcast. And the book of Hebrews is unique because it connects a lot of themes from the Old Testament with the New Testament. And it gives shape to a lot of the types and shadows that found their origin in the Old Testament. And it lifts up Jesus as being greater. Jesus as being greater than everything else. And as I said before, when you look at the book of Hebrews, it it all flows together. It's really hard to break it apart into different preaching passages for me because one thing leads into another thing and leads into another thing. And that's oftentimes why I like to back out and and take a a big view, like a 30,000-foot view of it. You know, I don't want to miss the forest because of the trees. And so I, I want us to, you know, look at book of Hebrews, chapter 5. You know, we start with that introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And then chapters 1 and 2 were about Jesus' superiority over the angels and talking about how God communicated with his people. And then chapters 3 and 4 were about Jesus' superiority over Moses as the agent of God's voice and an encouragement to listen to his words so that you could enter his rest. And then last week, we were at chapter 4, uh, verse 13, and talking about our need for a high priest. Well, two weeks ago, I talked about how God's word convicts us of our guilt. In verse 13, it convicts us of our guilt and leaving us naked and exposed to God as our judge. And that's why we need a priest. But not just any priest, we need a perfect high priest in order to sympathize with our weakness who can bring us before the throne of grace. So generally speaking, we've seen how Jesus is greater than the angels Jesus is greater than Moses, and now we turn to Jesus being greater than Aaron, the high priest. And that is why I titled the sermon, Jesus is the super great high priest. Or put another way, to sum it up, is that Jesus Christ is our perfect, super great high priest who is the source of eternal life for those who follow him. In order to fully understand what the author is talking about, especially in the next Uh, three chapters of the book, we need to understand what a priest is. When I say a priest, you might already have an image in your mind of what a priest is. You might be thinking of a guy who wears all black except for a white collar. You know, the guy who's in charge over at the Catholic Church, who leads the services, who sits in a little booth and you can tell all your deep, dark secrets to. Well, just so you know, I did not grow up Catholic And I've never attended a Catholic church. We have other pastor elders in our church who have, and who have a lot more personal knowledge and personal life experience of understanding how that all works. But it is funny because when I talk to people in the community here, some of them say, they call me, they ask if I'm a priest and they call me father. And I say, you know, I'm I'm only a father to Elliot and Simon, (laughs) all right? That's all I am. And then of course, and then I say, I'm not a priest. I have a high priest and his name is Jesus. And that's when I get funny looks, you know, people, they think I'm really weird when I say something like that. But you see, even though I understand what they're talking about, I understand what they're asking me, of course, right? They're asking me, like, you run a church, right? So you're a priest. You know, you, you take care of the mass on Sunday, right? That's what, they're, that's what they're relating. That's what a priest is in a lot of people's mind. Because they know that a priest is the go-between between people and God. It's not just a name or a title. That's what a priest is. It's not a title. It's the person who's the mediator or the go-between between man and God. And so when I say I'm not a priest, it actually gives me an opportunity or if somebody mistakenly asks me that, even though I know what they're asking me, I can use that as an opportunity to share 
the gospel, to share the difference between Protestants and Catholics. And I can explain the gospel message with that kind of a question because as the Son of God, Jesus is our high priest. He's, we talk about Jesus being our Lord and our Savior, even our King, but a lot of times we don't say, is Jesus your priest? Right? We don't use that too much in the church, or you might be unfamiliar with that title and that role, that job that Jesus has. He's not just Savior and Lord and King, but he's also our great high priest. I mean, think about that. We don't need another man. We don't need another person. We don't need any other mediator between us and God. Even though God is holy and high and lifted up, we have Jesus Christ, and he is our great high priest. In the Old Testament, God is the one who established the priesthood. When he was giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and prescribing how he ought to be worshipped and the way he needed to be worshipped, God was explaining this to his people because God didn't say you can worship any way you feel like it. No, this is the way you ought to worship me, God would say. And not only that, but who was to lead in worship? Not just where and how and what, but also who. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, Exodus 28, verse 1, he said, then bring, he's speaking to Moses, and he says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abahu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And so we see God set aside Moses' brother, Aaron and his descendants who would be the people that were chosen to go to God on the behalf of the people. And God gave specific instructions for them. And like I said, it was how and what they were supposed to do. Specific clothing that they were supposed to wear. Not only that, but specific ways they were supposed to do the ceremonial like washing before they put on certain clothes and then certain vestments, garments, robes that they were supposed to wear whenever they went in to worship him because they had to go through the proper channels in order to properly worship God. And why did God set all this up? God did this in order partially, well, not partially, fully to magnify his own name so that you would know this is not about you. This is about God. This is about God when you go to God and worship. And God was glor- wanted his name to be glorified. And God wanted you to know, wanted all the people, I should say, all the people to know sin is very serious. It's blood serious. You have to take a blood sacrifice in with you. Sin is serious, and there's a consequence for sin. And there is a right way and a wrong way to approach God. And like I said, we come to him on his terms, not on our terms. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, continues our encouragement to hold fast to our confession of faith because we have the great high priest of Jesus. And so let's look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, just because what he does is he gives a little typical, this is a typical priest. He gives a little background here. Um, the basic qualifications for a typical high priest, beginning with the word for in chapter 5, verse 1. And what we're going to see here is that each of these characteristics he mentions are mirrored and magnified in Christ, which is why I say he's our super great high priest. So ordinarily, the first thing that we have to know about the high priest is that the high priest was chosen. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest and the representative of the people. And it says that he was chosen from among men. Every high priest was a part of Aaron's line, but each one of those men were all chosen from, by God, from among all the others. So how did they choose who it would be? Well, did they take a vote? No. Only God appointed the high priest. And it has this the, the appointed right there. That's a passive 
verb showing that the action was committed by God unto the other. It wasn't the other who was choosing this at all. So the high priest was the receiver of the action. And God initiated the role of high priest. And any other priest afterward must be called by God in order to be considered an authentic, authoritative representation of the people before God. And secondly, this person was chosen. So this person was chosen um, from among men. He was chosen by God, and he was chosen in order to do a job, a certain job that they needed to do. And that job, it says in verse 1, was to do and uh, pertaining to those things, those matters in relation to God. And that's what Exodus 28 is all about. Exodus 28 and following is all about that. And according to Hebrews 5.1, this man's job was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. There were a few different types of sacrifices in the Old Testament that God gave to the people in order to make the proper sacrifices to God. One of those things um, that we, he talks about, that he could be talking about here, were grain offerings when he says gifts. The grain offerings God gave to the people to, to give us thanksgiving offerings. So when you would bring a grain offering, you would thank God for the things in your life. You would thank God for different things that he has done. And then the sacrifices, that might be referring to the blood offerings for sin. But generally speaking, when he says that, that the person who was called to offer gifts and sacrifices to sin, it was kind of the generalized picture. It wasn't just those two things. There was uh, four or five different specific sacrifices that they were made to God. And the, the job of the priest was to make these sacrifices to, to God on behalf of the people. And it wasn't just any man who was selected. He had to have a, a sympathetic disposition. In other words, he had, he had to be able to relate to the people. He was aware of his weaknesses. It wasn't because, like I said, he was, uh, had attained some status. He didn't give the most money, and he wasn't like the strongest person or the smartest person. He didn't take a test in order to do that. In fact, one of the key characteristics of the person who was chosen was his weakness, not his strength. He was chosen because of his weakness. And verse 2 says that he was able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because of his weakness. And wayward can mean uh, misguidedness. It can mean not necessarily someone who was going against the will of God, but who had strayed and was, had strayed and was doing something they shouldn't be doing. It's not necessarily outright rebellion against God. And this high priest, even though he was in, uh, you know, he's called high priest, but he wasn't up on a pedestal. He recognized and he understood that he was a man just like them. And he was doing a job just because he was doing a job. It's like he was just a, a vessel, a conduit to be used by God to do what God had prescribed him to do. And he knows as a weak person that he doesn't need to get angry because of the person's sin. It wasn't, he understood that he didn't lose his temper with somebody. Oh, why are you messing up? And he understood that uh, he didn't play down sin and say, oh, it doesn't matter, because it does matter, but he was able to lovingly do what he was called to do, is to help other people and to be a vessel for God. So he could be patient with the sinner, but he could deal with sin seriously, because he knew that he was a, a sinner. And in fact, he was reminded that he was a sinner because he had to make atonement for his own sins before he could make atonement for other people's sins as well. So he was chosen, and he was sympathetic. And then he was also humble, aware of his own sinfulness. Read verse 3 with me. It says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. 
And we see that foundation all the way back when God had called Aaron in, in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 3. In Leviticus 9, 3, then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord had commanded. He goes on in, in Leviticus chapter 16, explains a lot of this in detail of what he was supposed to do specifically, specifically on the day of atonement, that one day a year when they made sacrifice for sins because he knew he was a sinner and he couldn't just walk into the presence of God, he would die. So he had to make atonement for his sins and then he had to go before God's throne before in the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of the people. In Leviticus 16, he goes on to describe on this day how they would make atonement for sin. They would take two goats and this is all described in Leviticus 16, but he would take two goats with him in order to end, end, into the temple area. And then the high priest would kill one of these goats as a sin offering for the people. And the other goat was, goat was brought alive from the tent. And the high priest would lay his hand on this second goat. This was called the scapegoat. And he would confess the sins of the people, placing them on the goat. And then the, they would send the goat out into the desert. And so it would symbolize their sin being carried far away from the presence of God. And then also they would have the symbolism of the goat being killed and the blood covering the sins as well for the people. And so by doing this on the Day of Atonement, the high priest acted before God as a representative on behalf of the people making atonement for the sin. And that picture in two ways right there. And again, then in verse 4, he goes on to say by, by repetition here, that this person, whoever the high priest was at the time, is following in the footsteps of the first priest, Aaron, that God had called, chosen from among men, chosen by God, chosen for a specific job to do, for this role that he was placed in. And even though this priest held a high position and an exalted role here, his office is motivated by service and marked by humility. And so now with that background in mind, beginning in verse 5, our author here he shifts his focus to Christ the Messiah, comparing him with another high priest, similar in some ways to Aaron, but in some ways it was different. And our, the first listeners of this, uh, of the book of Hebrews, they, like us, they would have understood Jesus as being Messiah, Christ. And they would have understood him being Lord or Savior or even King. But these, even these first listeners, like us today, they would have trouble thinking of Jesus as being a priest at first. For one thing, like I said, all the priests all throughout history have always from one line, right? From the line of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. Well, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So he wasn't part of that priestly line. But there were similarities. Christ was appointed as a high priest, just like Aaron. And to prove it, the author here lists two passages of Scripture in our Bibles, it's set aside. You can see that there's it's referenced maybe in a footnote in your Bible. The first one is from Psalms 2-7, where he says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalms chapter 2 is what's known as a royal psalm or a kingly psalm. It's a psalm that was alluded to, was quoted at Jesus' baptism, showing that Jesus was fully God while he was on earth. He did not seek his own glory, and he wasn't trying to attain a certain position for his own recognition, but instead he was appointed by the father for a certain role. And the son accepted the role in obedience to his father. He knew that he was part of his 
what he came to do was to be a priest. And then the next verse, in verse 6 here, is a quote from Psalms 110.4. And it says this, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you might be saying, Melchizedek who? Who is this? After the order of Melchizedek, what does this guy have anything to do with Jesus? Who is Melchizedek anyway? Other than a very cool name, you know, that I thought maybe we should name our kids Melchizedek. I mean, it was, it's, but other than that, who is this person? Who is this interesting person named Melchizedek? Well, I'm going to explain it briefly, who this person is, but also know that in chapter 7, he comes up again in Hebrews with a lot more detail, so we can get into it more in the future. But basically, there are two reasons why he brings him up here. The first is to show that Jesus was a priest, like in every way that Aaron was, but he wasn't descended from Aaron. So Jesus' priesthood didn't end. Aaron's priest, everybody who was a priest from the line of Aaron, their priesthood ended when they died. They were no longer a priest. So there was always a, a succession of priests. Well, in verse 6, it says that Jesus' priesthood, like Melchizedek's, is forever. And secondly, Psalms 110.4 is listed um, with Psalms 2 here because both of those psalms, Psalms 110 and Psalms 2, are what's known, like I said, as royal psalms or kingly psalms to show that Jesus is a king, but he's also a priest at the same time. Because in the Old Testament, those roles were distinct and they were never combined. So let's turn, if you will, with me to Genesis chapter 14, because I want to introduce you to this mysterious Melchizedek. And it's in Genesis 14. So keep your finger there and turn back. And I want to read with us here in a minute. As you're turning there, I'll tell you that Melchizedek is a guy who appears and then he disappears. And you don't hear anything from him. He appears for a little while and um, he disappears. His name literally means king of righteousness. And Genesis first identifies him as king of Salem. And this is a region, as we're going to read here in a second, it's a region that's uh, a Gentile and pagan territory, but the word Salem literally means peace. It's where we get the shalom from, where, where Jewish people say shalom, it means peace. And a lot of people think Salem, what he's referring to here, becomes Jerusalem, which is city of peace. Melchizedek is a, is a king, and yet he performs a task that's not common to kings. He brings bread and wine. And Genesis here, we're going to read in a second, identifies him as a priest of God Most High. And so in some interesting and mysterious way, it's like God chose this person who was from a foreign people, a foreign king who was a priest, though, to come and bless Abraham. And remember, Abraham is the one that God established his covenant with to begin with. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham responds by giving him a tenth of everything. And then the only other time when he appears is was, um, as a priest and a king doesn't ever appear together. So let's read it together here in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. It says, um, after his return, now his is, is Abraham. So after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. So you see, what here is Melchizedek is this guy who comes out, and he comes out beside the king of Sodom, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom, and they come out, and they both have different ways of responding to Abram. Abraham, the guy that uh, God had made his covenant with, and it says that he is priest of the God Most High. So he's a priest and he's a king at the exact same time. And the point that Hebrews is making here with Jesus is that he is a priest and a king exactly at the same time. The only other time in the Old Testament you see that is a guy named Uzziah, and he was judged for trying to be the king and the priest at the same time because they were distinct roles. So Melchizedek, he appears here, and then he, he disappears, and he doesn't appear again to Psalms 110. And Psalms 110 is about a victorious king who is also, it's, it pops up in verse 4 and says that he is a priest as well. And so Psalms 110 is a fulfillment about a victorious king. And in the short run, you see David is that victorious king. And in the long view, you see that one of David's descendants, Jesus, is that victorious king that Psalms 110 is also talking about. And then right there in the middle of verse 4, it says, and he is a priest just like Melchizedek. So Hebrews chapter 5 picks up on the same themes that was started in um, Genesis and then had their partial fulfillment in Psalms. And now the, the picture, if, you see, if you're tracking with me, it just becomes so much clear that this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And so he is our super great high priest. The connections there are unmistakable to the first listeners of Hebrews and hopefully are unmistakable to us as well that Jesus Christ is our king and our, he is our priest forever. Yeah, he died on the cross, but he rose three days later. And so his priesthood never ends and death has no hold on him. And just like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood was different. It was chosen just by God. It didn't end. Jesus didn't take this honor on himself. He was just being obedient. And Jesus is the perfect, chosen God-man who is the royal priest, our super great high priest that we needed. And then he goes on here in verse 7, and he, um, again, he's making this point crystal clear that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he accomplished what he was sent to accomplish for us. And he begins in verse 7 by saying, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Because of his reverence, because of his, his piety, because of his, his humble submission, he was heard. Because of his devotion. Remember that although he was God, like we talked about last week, Jesus suffered, he suffered just like any other human being. He experienced heartache and loss and grief just like us, and he had to depend on his Father in heaven. I think this is referring to all of Jesus' life, but also when you read this, if you know about Jesus' life, then you know it kind of sounds like the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? The Garden of Gethsemane was that time right before Jesus was arrested, right before you know, Jesus went to the cross, where Jesus spent that time in prayer where he cried out to his Father in heaven, if it is your will, let this cup pass before me. But yet not my will, but your will be done, Father. He spent time with the Lord praying, and he was under so much stress that it says that he, 
his sweat was like drops of blood coming from his, from his head because he was under so much stress. He was crying out with loud cries. And it doesn't say in the Gospels that he, there were tears with his. But when you read the account, you can assume that it was such an emotionally draining time before his arrest, before he went to the cross. He was in agony about what was going to happen before him. And he, you know, he, he was praying to God that, uh, for strength. He was praying to God that God would hear his, his prayers. And we know that he was submitting himself to the will of the Father in heaven. And it says that his prayers were heard. I believe that Jesus was praying for strength about what was going to come. That Jesus was praying that God's will would be done. And he knew that it wasn't like that Jesus accidentally got arrested. We talked about this before, how Jesus willingly laid down his life for his sheep. He willingly went to the cross for us and took our, the penalty for our sins with him. And in a sense, you could say that his prayers were heard in the fact that, yes, he died on the cross, but three days later, he got up. He got up out of the grave again and lives forever now. Our king lives forever. Our great high priest who went through that for us lives forever. And so the father heard his prayers and he was delivered from death in his resurrection which we celebrate on Easter Sunday and which we celebrate every Lord's Day together. And verse 8 says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. It says he was made perfect. Again, I said, well, Jesus was perfect. Why did it say he learned obedience? Did he have, was there some short-sightedness that he had to learn? Did he, uh, what, what was this referring to? Well, Hebrews and all of Scripture makes it clear that Jesus did not sin. He was sinless. But rather, when we read this, it really highlights his humanity. As Jesus experienced the trials associated with human existence, he, did, he went through that process of learning to, I mean, of, of growing in his obedience to the Father. And he did go through suffering and submitting to the Lord's will. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient as a servant, even um, death. Even death on a cross, it says. In the same way, when it says that he was made perfect, don't think that Jesus was sinful. He is sinless. But being made perfect means that he became fully qualified by his obedience to the will of the Father in heaven to go through what he went through. So by learn, if you could say, okay, by verse 8, he learned obedience, that he went through that school of suffering that Jesus endured, in verse 9 saying that he had earned perfection is kind of like saying that he graduated from the school and was able to accomplish. It was fulfilled in him. So and made perfect, everything was complete whenever he went through the, he did his work on the cross there, accomplishing the goal that the Father had sent him to accomplish, which was dying for sinners. And there are three levels here that the actions of Jesus that are described here really helps us in our own walk. First of all, Jesus' perseverance has made him a suitable great high priest that we all need. And for that, we should owe him our thanksgiving and our praise and our obedience. His appointment and following role makes him that one that we needed to worship and praise. And secondly, thinking again, going back to what, you know, where chapter 4 ended, he can, as the righteous sufferer, he can identify with each of us. He can identify us he went through suffering. He went through pain. He's known temptations, and yet he did not give in. He went, 
and he went to the Father in prayer. And so we can follow his example going in prayer, knowing that God hears our prayers. And so whether the answer is yes or no or wait, we must remain obedient to God, remembering that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And because of the perseverance through extreme suffering that he went through, he is an example to us of how we can pray, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And then the final important part of Jesus' act of obedience for us is that he earned salvation through his perfect life and perfect obedience. As verse 9 says, he is the source of life. He is the source of eternal life. In verse 9, it says that he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I love how verse 10 there, it like circles back to verse 1, talking about priesthood again. And he touches on that very important part of Psalms 2 and Psalms 110 that he mentions here in verse 5 and 6. But in conclusion here, he says, salvation comes to those who obey him. And the verb obey him is what we ought to do as followers of Christ. We should follow his example. The word obey here always has the sense of submitting your will to someone else's understanding and, and will. It's submitting our conduct, our allegiance to the will of another. So the author of Hebrews is again encouraging us to hold on to our confession of faith in Jesus Christ and not abandon our faith. And he ends this section in verse 10 here in the same place by talking about who Jesus is for us and saying that um, he is our super great high priest. You know, talking about the priesthood of Jesus and what he accomplished for us and how he is our great mediator, he's our, our go-between person, it reminds me of how during the Protestant Reformation, there was a new concept that arose, and it was a concept, a teaching, that was in opposition to the magisterial Roman church that was the only church at the time. You see, the Roman church, which we call now the Catholic church, the magisterial church of the medieval church of the 16th century they, and before, they taught that there was a special class of Christians. And this special class of Christians were known as the priests and other people as well. But they were the only ones who were able to communicate the truths about God and the only ones who were able to offer forgiveness. And this kind of teaching, what it did was it made people think that God was too far away and too distant to approach. That you needed a special person, another human person to come to God. But thankfully, there was a, a great awakening. And God used uh, a German Catholic monk named Martin Luther, and he used other people as well. To, and they began to understand from Scripture that a person is not, uh, we are saved through faith alone. It was the, the whole, one of the, the, the big things about the Reformation was justification. In other words, how are we made right with God? Do we need to go to another person? They started to teach a new concept, a concept known as the priesthood of all believers. I don't know if you ever heard that before, the priesthood of believers. That means that if you are a Christian, that means that even if you're not a Christian, you don't have to go to a priest, and you don't have to go to a confession booth to get your sins forgiven, and you don't have to pay money or do certain things in order to receive grace, and there's not a person in a black uh, coat who's one who's giving out God's grace. You can go to the throne of grace, like we learned last week, to get your sins forgiven. You can go directly to God. Even today, there are people who might 
find out that I'm a pastor, and they're like, oh, oh, you're, or you're a Christian. Oh, you're a special person, you know? Oh, I can't, you know, make sure you pray for me. You know, pray for me to do this, or um, we got to keep on this guy's good side because he's an elder, or this person's a church member. So this person is a special type of believer. Understand this, that you don't have to be a pastor or a priest or a super good Christian in order for God to hear your prayers. You can go to God in the name of Jesus Christ. And he hears your prayers. There's no dividing wall there. You can go directly to God. And in, in that sense, think about that, the priesthood of all believers. So if you are a Christian, you are a priest in one sense. You are a priest because you have received God's grace and you can tell other people about God's grace. And if somebody is confused or ask you what kind of church you go to or ask if, um, about your priest or something like that, you can say, you know what? I'm not a priest, but I have a great high priest. And not only that, he is a super great high priest. And his name is Jesus.